Radio. Welcome to the Unlimited Wealth Podcast, where we help entrepreneurs like you build the wealth and lifestyle you deserve. My name is Nicholas Jensen, bringing you the secrets behind the relationships, strategies, and mindset of the most successful people on the planet. Showing you how to collapse time frames in order to win at business, money, and the adventures of life. You don't know what you don't know, so I'm here to show how the wealthy live, think, and make their money grow. It's time to live the life that you deserve. I'm, I'm here to help. My, my name is Nicholas Jensen. And, and this is Unlimited Wealth. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unlimited Wealth Podcast. My name is Nicholas Jensen. Thanks, uh, thanks for joining me today. Today, I'm joined by Paul Moore. Paul is an experienced real estate investor. He's got a lot of experience not only developing real estate and coming up with real estate strategies. He's got his own podcast on, on how to lose money is what he calls it, as well as he's a contributor on, on uh, Fox Business and Bigger Pockets. He started out in the Ford Motor Company, and then he later on went and started a staffing firm in which they sold for several million dollars later, and it put him on the list for becoming a finalist with a Michigan Entrepreneur of the Year for a couple straight years in a row. He's an author, he's a podcaster, and now he's a, a real estate funds manager. So he manages Wellings Capital. So thank you, uh, thank you for joining me, Paul. It's great to be here, Nicholas, but why on earth would you want to have somebody on here who's got a podcast called How to Lose Money? Yeah, really, right? Because I think the idea is to is to not lose money. So you tell me what? Uh, why did you Why did you name your podcast "How to Lose Money"? Yeah, well, um, yeah, it was it was sort of fun. It was kind of a whimsical name, but it was based in reality. Over the years, I would go to these conferences, just like all of us do, and people on stage would be telling their amazing accolades and their great stories, and they're making millions of dollars. And I would watch the people sitting around my round table and they would kind of do a breakout session. They would be kind of slumped over and they'd be like, oh, I'll never be like that guy. I might as well quit. I didn't have wealthy parents. I didn't have this. I don't have that. I didn't get that break. Well, when I actually became one of those speakers, I got to know the others and realized they had the same fears, same insecurities, same pain, same losses as everybody else out in the room. And I thought, wouldn't it be encouraging if those people could have heard that story? And if they could have realized that these wonderful, famous people like Gino Wickman and Mike Michalowicz and Wade Myers and all these folks had the same problems and the same losses everybody else did, sometimes bigger, but they learned from them and they catapulted those failures to the, toward their success. And so that's what we talk about on the show. Hey, you know, that's a... That's such an interesting perspective. You kind of triggered something for me is we always see the success of people, especially with social media, right? So social media is kind of this highlight reel of everybody's wins. But the value I think comes in the losses. The value comes in in the struggles. It's so easy to to look at all these successful people and feel that way you know, I'm never going to be like that, or, or I don't know how to get there without realizing the struggles that they went through. So talk to me about that a little bit. Like, what has that really done for people that you associate with being able to kind of open the curtains and reveal some of the struggles that have happened? How's that helped individuals kind of get to the next level? Yeah, well, so for the people sharing the stories, believe it or not, some of them have actually had this really this emotional release. A lot of them have said, I haven't talked about this in 12 years. 12 is a similar number for many people because a lot of people lost a lot in 2008 or so. But um, 
but seriously, a, a lot of the listeners say, you know, it's they, they've realized it's a lot easier to avoid someone else's mistake than it is to replicate their success. And so, you know, when I read about the mistakes Warren Buffett made, let's say, I've got a lot better sense for what not to do than when I read about his successes and I realize, gosh, that's not, I, I don't know how to even replicate that success. So I think that's one of the most important things about it. And the second thing is it, it, it gives people hope. They feel like, oh, well, if Gino Wickman lost that much money that quickly, then there's hope for me too. Yeah, for sure. So when you look at individuals learning how to invest or trying to invest, right? So a lot of my audience, are they're actively trying to build wealth. They've got successful businesses. They're looking to deploy some of that capital into other investments that will help them to leverage their, their business to build wealth basically outside of their business. So when you look at an individual in that type of scenario, what are some of the things that you would encourage them to avoid? Let's specifically talk real estate, right? Let's talk about we're going to deploy some of our, our capital from our business into some real estate investments. What are some of the things that you would encourage some of these, these individuals to avoid? That's a great question. So I would avoid swinging for the fences. You know, Babe Ruth is the all-time home run king. Even if other people have surpassed his numbers, he's legendary. Even though he was around over 100 years ago, he's legendary because he swung for the fences. And he was also the strikeout king. The problem with that mindset in investing is it's, it's sort of an entrepreneurial mindset. Entrepreneurs take risks. They, they're business owners. They're, they're on the cutting edge. They're trying something new. They're failing sometimes and they're succeeding sometimes. That's not necessarily the best way to invest your capital though. You know, because I mean, as an entrepreneur trying to start a wireless internet company, which I did and failed, um, you know, we were trying all kinds of new technology and all this up in a frigid North Dakota weather and it, it wasn't uh, a good thing to do. But if I invest that way, it's kind of an all or nothing attitude. You know, like I'm just betting the farm on this. Well, that's, you know, that's speculating. It's not really investing. You asked about investing. I, I think investing is when your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've yeah. got a chance to make a return. And so entrepreneurs who invest that way are often the losers. You know, uh, the first Nobel Peace Prize winner in economics, Paul Samuelson from the U.S., said, uh, investing should be more like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. That, I don't know if that's excitement or not because the chance of, of keeping your $800 once you leave Las Vegas is, is hard, which is kind of, you know, we're recording this as we're, I would say we're in the midst of the pandemic of the, of the coronavirus, right? So we've seen basically people playing the, the Las Vegas game in Wall Street or on Wall Street in the stock market, losing just massive amounts of money and large percentages of, of their portfolio. And, and that's one of the things that when you look at investing, oftentimes the media is controlling the dialogue. And the media encourages individuals to invest in Wall Street. And that when, when you just go out into the public, into the mass media or to the mass populations, and you ask, 
you know, where do you, where should you, or where do you invest your money? Oftentimes that answer comes back as the stock market. And from what you were just talking about, speculating is putting your money somewhere that it's, there's a chance for it to lose and the opportunity to make money. Whereas investing, you should be able to put your capital somewhere where that capital or that principle is, is relatively safe. And I look at one of those places to put safe or put principal in safe places is, is real estate, is real estate investing, because you have a hard asset backing that, that money. And I know that you've got tons and tons of experience in the real estate uh, industry and the real estate market. Talk to us a little bit, like, what are your thoughts about that landscape changing going forward? Right. So as, as we move into this time frame, some of the sectors that have been apartments have been really hot. Single family homes have been hot. A lot of speculative land developments been hot. But what do you what do you see changing or, or how do you see that landscape changing over the next, you know, 12, 18, 36 months? Yeah. So I wrote a book called The Perfect Investment. Very humble title. Wouldn't you agree? in uh, 2016. And it was about multifamily investing. And I talked about the demographics, the long-term trends, all the reasons, you know, that multifamily investing should be one of the safest places to invest. And then I turned around and didn't invest in multifamily very much at all over the next four years because it had gotten so popular that the, um, the people investing in multifamily, the, the operators were overpaying for assets. And I actually went all over bigger pockets and online and I started warning everybody who would listen not to buy multifamily, even though I had written this book. And I was warning them that this is just not the time. Everything I said in the book's true, but when the price is 10 or 20 or even 30% higher than makes sense, then it's not the right time to buy. That's the time when you need to do the most due diligence. That's the time when you need to have the largest margin of safety, but it's the time that people do the least due diligence and have no margin of safety. And so uh, I think that now we're going to this COVID environment. Uh, Warren Buffett's saying is going to come true. He said, someday the tide will go out. And when it does, we'll see who's swimming without a bathing suit. And so I'm afraid that we're in that time, uh, not today, but I'm thinking the next six to 18 to 36 months, like you said, we're going to see who's swimming without a bathing suit. Now, there are certain asset types that already had headwinds. Things were going against them. Malls were having a really hard time. Retail, in the, one of the boom, you know, best boom economies ever in 2019, 12,000 retail uh, outlets went out of business. Uh, in 2019. So they already had headwinds against them. I think COVID is just going to uh, hasten their demise in a lot of cases. There's already rumors that JCPenney and Neiman Marcus will follow Sears and Kmart into bankruptcy soon. So I think that's pretty likely. Now, there are other asset classes that tend to fare very well at the other end of the extreme in a time like this, cell towers do well. Um, um, data centers, there's no reason they shouldn't be booming right now. There are some issues with data centers as far as becoming a commodity, but that's another story. And then there's self-storage and mobile home parks. And we could talk for quite a while about this, but I'll summarize by saying both self-storage and mobile home parks 
have sticky tenants, meaning that when people, meaning that when people go, they hardly ever leave. Uh, they tend to be recession resistant. They're a small uh, self-storage specifically is a small part of someone's income. So while they might downsize to cut their mortgage in half or, you know, rent a smaller place or even go to a mobile home park, uh, they often will hold on to their $90 a month self-storage locker because they don't want to get rid of their stuff. In fact, I wrote a book that's coming out soon called um, Storing Up Profits, Capitalizing on America's Obsession with Stuff by Investing in Self-Storage. Now, just to quickly round this out, mobile home parks are another great investment spot because it's the only asset type we know of that has a decreasing supply and an increasing demand every year. There's an affordable housing crisis among uh, people of all ages, but specifically, there are 10,000 people turning 65 every day. And Nicholas, as you probably know, six out of 10 of those don't have more than $10,000 cash saved for retirement. And a lot of them do have home equity though, and they're willing to trade it in for a mobile home park lifestyle, slashing their expenses and allowing them to live in somewhat comfort on social security. And so mobile home parks, other affordable housing types, I think are going to do very well. In fact, they didn't have any downturn at all that's at least noticeable on graphs uh, in uh, 2008, 9, 10 downturn. So let's talk, let's talk a little bit about that because I don't disagree with you on that and that mobile home parks are, are trending in, in a positive direction. The one thing that I've seen is it seems like, so if you, if you rewind and you say apartment buildings 10, 12 years ago, kind of had this uptick. And now you see that the cap rates are really compressed with apartment buildings. Um, it's been super hot, super popular sector. It seems like the mobile home park, it's starting to go that way too, in which more and more investors are looking at them as an asset class. But then even though we have an affordable housing crisis, it seems like a lot of cities, counties, not necessarily states, but cities and counties kind of point their thumbs down on building oh, new yeah. mobile, home, mobile home parks. So oh, when you yeah. look at affordable housing, I think that's a, a great asset class that can help solve that problem. But do you see that being as advantageous as like some of these, these townhome communities? So most of the builders, most of the developers want to build class A, A plus um, housing and, you know, charge a premium for it. Very few want to build, you know, stock, you know, workforce housing type stock. I know a few who do, and I think that's really smart. And they usually have waiting lists when they open, uh, or at least the ones I know do. Uh, I think that's a, a great way to go. I just don't see it very often. Mobile home parks are lower risk because there are 44,000 of them in the U.S. and almost 40,000 are owned by mom and pop owners. A lot of them are older. A lot of them are ready to retire and move on. And a lot of them have seen their values literally double in the last, say, five or 10 years as mobile home park stigma has gone away and people realize what a great asset class it is, you know, with Warren Buffett owning Clayton Homes and 21st Mortgage and you've got Sam Zell, the world's most successful real estate investor, to my knowledge, owning you know 158,000 mobile home park pads. Um, lending has gotten very, very favorable for mobile home parks. 
And if you can acquire one of these mom and pops where the owner doesn't have the desire, the knowledge, or the resources to improve the income and therefore the value, you can pay them a fair price and then you can buy an asset with a lot of meat left on the bones. I can quickly go through one. We recently invested in one and we were there for due diligence in mid-January. We closed February 21st on February uh, for 7.1 million. On February 27th, six days later, got an offer for nine and a half million from somebody who saw the press release saying, how in the world did you buy it that well? It turned out the owner, the previous owner, hadn't even been there in five years. And it was one of those things where it just was a great position. It was in a great position, great location, but it just wasn't really well run. Uh, the offer of nine and a half million was turned down without a, a counter because with three simple changes, that part could be worth 12 to 14 million. And so that's called a margin of safety. In a time like this, that's what you want because we can implement even one of those three changes and build a nice margin of safety for the times like this where there's going to be some rough spots ahead. And we've invested in you know about 20 different assets like that this year that have that kind of math. That's pretty impressive, especially in kind of this real estate market that's been you know booming and, and it's been tougher and tougher to, to find deals. When you look at, um, I mean, you, you're in the grind every day, right? Like that's what you do for, for a living is, is invest in real estate. How would somebody who is a successful business owner knows they need to have real estate as a, as a piece of their, their portfolio, how would you encourage them to kind of dig into, you know, some of these types of investments? And we talked about, you know, things to avoid, right? Which is, is make sure that you have a margin of safety, but like how would a newbie, if you will, go about trying to get into one of these types of investments? Because they may have the skill set to run it themselves, but more than likely they need to rely on some experts to, to help them get through it. Yeah, well, there are property management firms that manage self-storage and mobile home parks, but most people that buy them for a semi-passive investment end up either A or B. Either A, they become a mom and pop operator with a poorly run operation and they become one of the people that we like to buy from. Uh -huh. I don't want to see that happen to anybody. Or B, they throw themselves at it full time. They give it everything they have and they might become a successful operator if they become obsessed with being a great operator. A better option than both of those for most, but for the vast majority of people, however, Nicholas, is being a passive investor. Now, you don't have to be a full-time passive investor to do it. You just have to find the right manager to invest with. It's, you know, Warren Buffett's success is not in making ice cream or writing insurance policies or building mobile homes. It is in finding the right people who are really good at that. And so if you can go out there and, you know, do the due diligence thing, if you have the skills to do that, or if you can rely on somebody else to really due diligence, the right manager and the right assets, then you can invest heavily with them. And uh, I think that you actually, I mean, a great asset manager operator sometimes does literally, and I mean, literally two to three times the returns of a mediocre one. Not to say a bad one, even much more than that compared to a bad one. 
And so if you can find a great one and you can get, let's say a 9%, for example, eight or 9% preferred return, and let's say 80% of the profits above the pref, well, think about the math on that. If they're doing double what a mediocre or an average operator is doing, you're way ahead. And the effort you have to expound is number one, the due diligence, and number two, walking to the mailbox every month to get your check. So when you look at when you look at that, um, people that haven't invested in real estate in the past oftentimes are skeptical of the returns that you can get from, it, especially if you're using a, if you're investing with a, an operator, right? Because let's let's take this back to back to the the stock market. Oftentimes, if you just ask individuals, hey, how much can you get from the stock market? Most of the population says 10 to 12% on average, which is an absolute crock of crap and BS. When you look at what people are actually getting, they're, in fact, studies have shown equity investors are actually getting about 5.5%, right? But they think they're getting 10 to 12 So when you start to present um, real, real estate investments to individuals, and they don't have a lot of experience with it. And you're able to, to tell them, hey, you can get an eight or nine pref plus 80% of profit. Or, you know, you can look at, you know, an IRR of, you know, 20 to mid 20s. How do you help individuals realize that that's actually possible and to overcome that, that skepticism, right? Because the last thing people want is to be scammed by false advertising, if right. you will, right? So, but but you and I both know that that that's realistic. But how do you how do you help other individuals realize that that that's possible? Well, one of the ways we decide who we want to put our money with is due diligence, and part of that is checking their track record. So we're checking their referrals, their criminal background, their track record. We're looking for a third party verification of returns in some cases. Um, and um, so I would recommend that people do the same. I would not recommend that people invest with the first person or first deal you see. I'd recommend, I mean, it could end up, you might circle back to them. Yeah. But I would definitely compare. I would definitely dig deep. I would definitely carefully weigh out uh, all this stuff. We've got about a 20 or 30 point checklist. Uh, there's a new book out called The Hands-Off Investor. And I, I've got it coming in the mail. I haven't gotten it yet from my friend, Brian Burke. And Brian goes through a very extensive, detailed analysis on how to do due diligence to answer the exact question that you asked. Do you recommend or do you feel like, is it better for people to in, invest in like a, a syndication type scenario or more of like a, a fund? Do you have a preference one over the other? Yeah, I think there's a lot of advantages to uh, to both, but I think a fund has more advantages than a, synd- than a syndication. So number one, let's say I invested in 10 different syndications and each one had that preferred return hurdle rate and then an 80-20 split above that. Well, if on 10 of those, let's say I exceeded the split you know, let's say I hit the 8% preferred return and let's say the total return was 12. Well, then I'm going to be giving as an investor, I'll be sharing my profit on those five that did well with the operator. But the other five, let's say I lost, let's say they only hit 5% total return per year. 
well, I'm going to be basically not sharing my profits with them. Well, if I was in a fund, it would be a blended return of the whole thing. And the blend between the 5 and the 12% is probably going to be on the range of somewhere halfway in between those two. And that would put me just at a place where the operator would not have gotten a piece of that, if that makes sense. In other words, I'm cross-collateralizing my investment across 10 uh, opportunities. Number two, I'm also diversifying in a fund. And that's just obvious. I'm getting, you know, the, I mean, there's going to be one or two bad investments in a typical group of 20 or 30. And if that's the case, I don't want to be one of those one or two bad ones. I want to be in the money. And of course, a fund allows me to get the diversification. I also get the diversification across asset types, geographies, sometimes operators, sometimes vintage of the property, and then sometimes the strategy. And what I mean by that is we might have a buy and hold investor who wants to hold for, you know, 10 years. And we might have another one who's a fix, get the income up and then sell investor. Well, if we, uh, I should say operator. So if I invest in a fund that has both, I'm getting a mix of both. And in some economic climates, it's better to be a long-term holder, even if it looked better going in to be a quick fix and flip. Yeah, we and we may be in one of those environments right now where it's it's going to be better to to be a, a long term holder there. Right. So this is a this has been great, Paul. What uh, what advice would you give um, those individuals who are who are moving into the or, or we're facing COVID? We don't know what the economic outlook is going to be. I I in my opinion, I think anything's on the table at this point. I think it's too early to really tell what the impact is going to be. I think the less likely impact is kind of this, this V bounce that everybody's hoping for. I think there's going to be some sustainable pain, if you will, economic pain. So in facing the landscape looking ahead, what, what advice would you give to people looking to invest in real estate, looking to diversify their portfolio? What advice would you give them uh, going forward? You know, the advice I would give is the same advice I'm using when I'm investing myself. And that is look for opportunities. So first of all, if you're not sure what to do, it's time to hoard cash. I mean, Agreed. You know, it's 100%. a great time to have a lot of cash, number one. Number two, I if you're going to invest, invest with operators who have an inside track on mom and pop acquisitions. You know, 93% of apartments, which I like I said before, I love, 93% are owned by companies and they've already rung out the value add. But 90% of mobile home parks are owned by individuals and they haven't rung out the value add. Nowhere near. So there's a lot of meat on the bone. And they're also more recession resistant. So I would definitely try to find a recession resistant. Uh, asset. Third, I would focus on finding a great operator. The, the the profits in the people. And so, you know, you can get a great deal with a bad operator and it's probably going to go bad. You can get a terrible deal or a mediocre deal at least with a great operator and they'll probably turn it around. And so look for that. Look to diversify. And I would say last, look for tr- assets that provide true wealth. Now, what I mean by that is this. I view wealth not as cars or Learjets or mansions, but as assets that produce income. Warren Buffett said, if you don't find assets that produce income while you're sleeping, then you're going to have to work till you die. Well, 
we're in a situation where basically uh, we want to see people provide, you know, get assets that regularly produce predictable income. And I think that's true wealth. Yeah, I would agree with you 100%. I mean, you always hear the, the adage, cash is king. I actually disagree with that. I think cash flow is king. Because yes. if you've got cash, that's, that's nice, but that cash runs out. If you've got cash flow, even though that pile may not be as big as your pile of cash, if it keeps coming in, you're able to sustain yourself a lot, a lot longer. Right. You said something in, in your advice there. One was to find a good operator. Where should people go? Like, where should people go to find these good operators that from a, when you look at it from an investment standpoint and the way that the investment advisory for or industry is set up and the SEC regulations and, and all of that stuff, oftentimes people just know to go to their quote unquote financial advisor, right? Or somebody like that. And really that's not what we're talking about here. Those individuals, if I'm just being really candid, are probably just pushing you to the stock market because they're going to get a fee on top of whatever fund they put you in. And that's not the type of investments we're talking about. We're talking about operators that are boots on the ground, getting their hands dirty, building assets or either taking over assets and, and extrapolating value out of those or building assets that are going to produce cash flow. Where do people go to find those types of individuals that they can invest with? You know, it's, I, I never would have imagined how hard it was until I started doing this as a professional passive investor. In other words, our firm is all, we're obsessed with, you know, passive investing in these type of, of deals and providing these opportunities for our friends and family as well. It's pretty hard. And crowdfunding has opened the doors for thousands, I mean, millions of people who didn't know anything about investing in these types of deals. They've opened the door now to being even more popular. And you would think, that the crowdfunding portals and companies do the due diligence to protect you as an investor. I'm not saying anything bad about them, but I am saying that they probably can't do the level of due diligence that you need to do as an investor. So, uh, you know, there's one website I would point people to, um, and that would be the Real Estate Crowdfunding Review. And you might want to have him on your uh, podcast as well. His name, the founder's name is Ian Ippolito. And he's got a review on there where people go in and they comment on different uh, syndicators, different funds, different opportunities, and they're very candid about that. And so that's, that's one place I would look. I would just really thoroughly check out whoever you think you might invest with, though. Cool. Hey, well, thanks, Paul, for, for joining us today. I think, uh, I think you know, as we look forward into building wealth and, and the landscape, especially real estate, I think there's going to be a lot of moving parts here going forward and, and being able to have conversations with, with guys like you that, that are in the weeds and, and see, what, see what's going on, I think is super helpful for, for individuals out there. So thank you so much for joining us. And uh, any, any last words that you'd like to, to leave? Well, let me ask you this. If people wanted to get in touch with you or to invest with you or some of your, your partners, how would they do that? You can come to our website at wellingscapital.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S-C-A-P-I-T-A-L, wellingscapital.com. And what we have there is we have a five-part 
real estate investment e-course that people can sign up for for free. They can go through these five days and learn a lot more. And it would actually answer a lot of your questions on how to find the right investment, whether it's with Wellings Capital or somebody else. We do do phone consultations as well. And we talk to people and we, I mean, I've steered probably three or four people at least in the last week to other operators, at least three or four, because I really want people to have something that's the perfect fit for them. That's awesome. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for so much for joining us, Paul. We'll put all the, uh, we're going to put the links to your books, to uh, your Welling Capital website, any ways that people can contact you. That'll all be in the show notes for listeners. So thanks again for joining us. And uh, we will talk to you guys next time. Have a great week. If you want to learn more about me, you can visit my website at www.nicholascjensen.com or follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Nicholas Jensen underscore. That's at Nicholas Jensen underscore. And if you haven't done so already, make sure you hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform because you do not want to miss out. We'll see you next time on Unlimited Wealth.